Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and on our panel today, we have Josh Adams. hey Michael Reese. Hello, Elixir friends. Eric Ostrich. Howdy. And today we are joined by our special guest, Matt Nowak. Matt, could you introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, thank you guys for uh, having me on the show. Um, my name is Matt. Uh, I work for Discord. I am the technical lead for their core infrastructure team. Um, and we get to use Elixir uh, uh, as part of our real-time chat product. Um, and our chat application connects uh, tens of millions of gamers and creative people uh, where it gives them a space to create communities uh, and chat with their friends and hang out from little servers of three or four people up to massive servers of uh, hundreds of thousands of people playing games together. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. That is awesome, because I know Discord is a, at least from my perspective, it feels like a relatively newer uh, entrant into like the online chat system. And I thought it was uh, very interesting in the pre-show, we were talking about like kind of where Discord came from. And I thought that was a, a little bit of an interesting story. I wonder if you could kind of share that with our audience. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Discord started its life uh, as a MOBA called uh, Fates Forever. Um, and, uh, you know, our, our CEO, our executive team, uh, they kind of had a, a vision of bringing people together around gaming. And their first, you know, bite at that apple was, let's make a game that people can play together. Uh, and <clears throat> the game was uh, loved by many people, but it really didn't get the traction that they were hoping for. Um, but they found that people were using like the chat part of the game quite a bit. Uh, and they said, well, maybe we should just make the chat part of this that people are really engaging with, you know, the product. Uh, and so they pivoted uh, into making Discord um, and, made, and, you know, we, we heavily went after the gaming community. And the idea was, you know, you could set up a TeamSpeak server, you could set up a Mumble server, but these were things you had to maintain yourself. Um, you had to have somebody who was willing to, you know, apply security patches and run run hardware uh, and we thought well you know it should be easier if you just want to pick up and play a game with your friends uh, and a lot of us uh, the best times of our lives uh, were you know growing up was playing games with our friends um, and there's that part of playing games with your friends that's where you're sitting next to each other on the couch uh, and just having a fun time goofing off kind of sideways from the game uh, and what we wanted to do was figure out, is there a way that we could use communication to kind of bring that to people, even if you're separated by a continent, but still have that like right next to each other playing games uh, feeling. 
so that's that's kind of where the idea for Discord and, and the mission that still drives us. Thanks for that brief introduction to Discord. I think it's something that a lot of the people in the Elixir community probably have heard about, hopefully, just because it is something that's using Elixir and it, it does, it's a system that runs at scale. And so recently you had a blog post where you talked about your, the, the problems that you had at Discord and, the, and how you were trying to solve them because you're dealing with this scale of like 11 million concurrent users. And so, and we're talking about, uh, in particular, NIFs. Uh, so I was wondering if you could kind of give an introduction to what a NIF is, if, uh, if people have, may or may not have heard about that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, in Elixir uh, and Erlang, uh, there are kind of three flavors of functions. So you have BIFs, built-in functions. These are uh, the things that ship with Beam. Um, so when you're calling a, a system function, that's a BIF. Uh, then you have your kind of your user space functions, the things that you write in Erlang or Elixir. Um, NIFs kind of fall into this middle ground. They are user space in that users write them, but they're not written in Elixir or Erlang. They are written with the ENIF C bindings that Erlang ships with. Um, and recently, uh, Rust, uh, which is a great up-and-coming programming language that I'm sure lots of people are, are familiar with and, and enjoy, but if you're not familiar with Rust, it is, it is a systems programming language coming out of Mozilla. Um, they have a fantastic project called Rustler, uh, which allows you to write NIFs in Rust instead of in C. Uh, and uh, native implemented functions can do things that... Uh, that's what NIF stands for, uh, can do things that uh, Erlang and Elixir don't allow you to do, uh, specifically for our use case, having mutable data structures, um, which we needed for performance reasons. So I'd love to jump in. There's, um, this blog post to me was really fun. There's uh, a, a lot of people um, don't have the problem with their Elixir uh, systems of having hundreds of thousands of people in the same chat room. So. Uh, the blog post, uh, so it's it's called um, Using Rust to Scale Elixir for 11 Million Concurrent Users, which is an amazing clickbait title. That is awesome. I mean, it's, it's not clickbait because it is actually what it says in the title, but it's a great catch line. Um, and, and it kind of starts off and it explains this premise that if you have thousands and thousands of people, tens or maybe even 100,000 people in the same channel, then there's naturally going to be a lot of people leaving and joining and becoming active or inactive. And if you have to stream each one of those updates individually to every client in the channel, you're just going to be using up a lot of bandwidth, a lot of um, CPU cycles. You might be re-rendering things that don't really need to be re-rendered. And so you guys wanted to optimize for this case of, well, if we know that really only the top 100 people or whatever um, are actually visible in the little panel to the side that show you who's in the channel, we can just tell you about the updates affecting that part of the list. Um, and I love that this is a use case, again, that like how, how many of all the systems I've ever worked in, in my life actually cared about the difference between a, a room with 100 people versus a room with 100,000. Uh, and so this is one of those, this is one of those cases where um, I think it's worth pointing out to listeners, you may not need a wrestler package right away. <laughs> Uh, maybe if you're just shipping your product, it's not the right time to reach for this. But these are real problems that as you build a system and as you start to deliver value to customers, these things can become problems and they'll show up in kind of unexpected places sometimes. So I love the premise. I love the fact that the blog 
dives into so much detail about kind of the process that your team went through. Um, I'm wondering if you could give us just a little bit of background, Matt, on um, what are the what are kind of the other steps that your assist, that your team took towards solving this problem? What other solutions did you consider? And and maybe what was the thing that finally landed you guys on implementing a NIF? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the one of the to your point, um, one thing that was amazing is we kind of just went with a very simple and naive solution of. Well, let's just have uh, you know our, our Elixir just send all of the updates all the time, and you know to Elixir's great credit, that scaled up to about a hundred thousand um, you know people, and and that's where we kind of hit our breaking point. And said, okay, we need to reassess how we want to do this. Um, also, you know there were there was battery and data savings uh, for our clients, which would which would be nice. Um, so when we determined that we wanted to do this project and bring you know, this big chunk of data that was living on the clients to the server, uh, let the server manage it and, and fan out, you know, more efficient uh, updates. Uh, we actually reached for just the, you know, built-in Elixir primitives at first. We said, you know, can we just do this with a list? Um, can we, uh, we knew that the, the members list had certain properties that we cared about. It needed to be sorted. We needed to be able to add and remove things to it. And when we added and removed so that we could dispatch the correct updates, we needed to know what index uh, adds and removes were happening at. So we kind of, we had a, a broad kind of this specification of what the data structure needed to do. Um, and nobody should reach first for a NIF. NIF should not be like the first tool that you try for because there's so many great packages. There's so many problems that are already solved uh, by Erlang standard library and Elixir standard library. Um, and we tried a lot of them. We tried, you know, GB tree, we tried ord set, um, we tried uh, lists. Uh, we actually uh, tried and deployed our own custom data structure that we built called ordered set, um, which used uh, small ord sets uh, linked in a skip list. Uh, and we actually saw that that had pretty good performance. Um, and, and we actually called it a day and we said, okay, that was, that was good enough. And it was a pure Elixir data structure. Uh, also, I should mention, uh, I, I skipped over this in the, the blog post too, and, and people really wanna know about it. We did try ETS, lots of ETS. We have tons of ETS running around. Um, and ETS is a great solution to a lot of problems that look this way, where you go, I need to mutate a bunch of stuff. ETS is great for it. Um, but, but at the end of the day, what we came down to was we were, we were fitting just within our performance envelope. Uh, and we had really kind of used all of our performance budget up uh, with this feature. Uh, and the CTO, uh, we were working on our game store and our dispatch team that was working on game store, they were building stuff out in Rust. And they were just seeing great results uh, performance-wise, uh, Defect wise that like the rust compiler is uh, very strict about what you can do the borrow checker is very strict about what you can do But the the payout you get is that like your code if it compiles mostly works um, Of course you can still have logical errors the compiler isn't gonna read your mind for you, but um, it, it works and it's fast uh, so our CTO came up to me and he said uh, You know NIFs are a thing can we write a, a, a NIF in rust and I said, well, let me Google around. Uh, I found a great talk uh, by the author of Rustler. Um, 
from uh, from a previous uh, Beam conference. And I said, yeah, I think we can give this a try. So he said, why don't you take a week and uh, you know knock up a prototype? Uh, luckily for me, I am very fortunate to work with uh, incredibly smart and generous uh, people who know Rust because I did not know any Rust going into it. Uh, so uh, my, my colleague, Gary Josak, uh, he uh, helped me with a prototype. We got kind of a proof of concept going. Uh, and then we said, well, let's benchmark this and see, is this you know, worth it? it it's it's going to be a new thing for our build system. It's a, it's a new development. It's potential new risk. Um, and then we benchmarked it and it was, you know, orders of magnitude faster. And we said, okay, this is, this is worth, the juice is worth the squeeze on this one. Like, let's go ahead and go all in on this. So there was a lot of awesome content in there and maybe we can tease out a few different things. Um, so one of the things I just want to point out is like when we're talking about, just to make sure it's clear to you, dear listener, is that when you're talking about like 100,000 users, we're talking about in one room, right? Where it's not like just my whole website has 100,000 users. So like we're talking about in one room where they're interacting with each other. So like that's kind of, that, that's kind of like the, the context. Uh, the other thing I think is we kind of touched on where you're saying don't reach for a NIF first thing. And I just want to mention that, you know, when we talk about NIFs in the Elixir community, you'll see conference talks about it. People talk about how awesome they can be. But one of the things they also, we need to, we talk about and mention is that uh, any bugs in that code that in that native function, any bugs in that can crash the entire beam. And so I was just curious if you could kind of touch on how, because you know, when you're, you're talking about discord and the scale that you're operating at, you know, crashing the beam would be a, a big problem. So how is Rustler different at or safer at managing this risk? Yes. Yeah, so I will preface this with, um, I'm not really a Rust expert. Uh, not, a, you know, most of the work that I do is up in higher level languages. So um, I'm sure, you know, uh, Rust and C programmers alike will have plenty of commentary on what I say next. Uh, so uh, Rust uh, is a language that has these zero cost abstractions and these very strong guarantees which makes it a nice partner for a language like Erlang or Elixir, which also provides you high level constructs and very uh, you know, strong guarantees around how things work. Uh, one of the things that Rust gives you is uh, the borrow checker and this, this memory model uh, around ownership of memory and the lifetime of memory and the system tracking you know, allocations and releases for you so that you can't leak memory um, unless you use unsafe code. You can't uh, have data races, uh, a bunch of very desirable attributes. And the Rustler crate uh, kind of adds on top of it a bunch of helpers for working with Erlang for creating, uh, you know, uh, atomic reference counted resources uh, that can be shared across threads and you have to, you know, take a mutex out on them. So it's a little bit more complex than writing you know, your standard Erlang or Elixir code, but Rustler provides you with these great safety primitives. Um, now, uh, would I have written a NIF in C? Probably not because I'm not a C programmer and the guarantee, I, I know that you can write safe code in C, but it is uh, something that really a skilled operator does. Um, and when it comes to C, I'm not that. Uh, but even with Rust, uh, NIFs are still somewhat, um, they are a place where danger can sneak in. Uh, and they're, you, to understand why you need to understand how the schedulers work in 
side of the beam virtual machine. Uh, and the schedulers work by broadcasting progress to each other. They don't use locks. They don't use mutexes. Instead, they all tell each other, hey, here's where I am. Here's where I am. Uh, and the schedulers are preemptive. They work off of a reduction system where they let a process run for 2,000 reductions and then move on to the next one. Now, when you're in a NIF, the NIF can, if it wants, just dominate the scheduler for as long as it wishes to because the NIF is required to yield. And so if you write a badly behaved NIF, it will run and run and run. That scheduler that it's running on will no longer be able to emit progress to the other schedulers. The other schedulers will say, well, hold on, we can't safely process in parallel anymore. Let's wait a second. Uh, and you get a syndrome called scheduler collapse where all the schedulers just kind of go to sleep and your VM just crashes. Uh, so even though we, uh, using Rust, uh, you know, a lot of data corruption, data race issues are not there, you can still uh, halt the scheduler and by doing so crash the, the VM. So, so care needs to be taken when you're writing NIPs. So I have a question. Did you use, do you use uh, dirty schedulers for, for the NIF? So Erlang's VM has support for schedulers that basically are meant to run poorly behaving code? So yeah, um, dirty schedulers are an option when making a, a NIF in Rust. Uh, it's actually very easy to do when you export the function. Um, there's a simple flag you can add to say, you know, run this on the dirty scheduler. Um, we looked into dirty schedulers not for this NIF, but for some previous research we had done. Uh, and we found that dirty schedulers, although they, they relieve you of the duty to like report back uh, reductions or yield back to the scheduler, um, we found that they had some other uh, issues, especially when you were running a lot of them in parallel because the dirty schedulers all share one run queue. And so we found that if you had misbehaving NIFs all you know, contending on the same run queue uh, and you were doing that at scale, uh, it, it could sometimes lead to other performance regressions. Uh, so instead of running it on the dirty scheduler, we had kind of two options. Uh, one was to uh, schedule the NIF uh, and allow it to kind of recursively reschedule itself uh, while reporting back reductions to the, to the VM. And the other was just to make sure that everything returned within uh, one millisecond. Uh, and so what we did was we set to benchmarking for all of the use cases that we had up to a million item set and we found that all of our operations were in the range of about uh, four microseconds. So we said, well, we, we have a lot of headroom before we get to that millisecond where we're in danger of pausing the scheduler, of causing scheduler collapse. So instead of doing additional work there, we said, well, let's just see if this works in production. Um, we can always, you know, turn it off, roll it back. Uh, and, you know, of course, we only did it on one host at a time. <laughs> we said, yeah, this seems to work. Uh, seems like it's performing the way we wanted it to, uh, and, and we didn't need to worry about uh, reporting reductions or yielding back to the scheduler or running it on a dirty scheduler. Cool. Yeah, I would say four microseconds. That's, uh, that's pretty good for a, a set with a million items in it. <laughs> um, can, you, can you give us a little bit more detail about that, um, the memory uh, or reference counting that you mentioned that comes in that Rustler package? I was, the first thing I thought of when I, when I was looking at the GitHub repo for sorted set NIF, um, and sorry for listeners, sorted set NIF is the uh, open source version of this Rustler package um, that Discord released shortly after the blog post or maybe concurrently with the blog post. Um, and so that uh, people in the community can make use of the same tool if they have a similar use case. Um, and one of the first things I thought of was if, uh, if 
my if Rust has allocated some memory, it's managing some memory on a heap um, that is holding this mutable data structure. Um, what happens if I create that and my Elixir process dies? Um, do I need to worry about somehow freeing that? Um, is it possible to pass that reference to, um, to the wrestler data structure between processes? What, what kinds of considerations do I need to have for the rest of my Elixir code? Yeah, so um, the resource that you're getting out of the uh, Rust space, uh, now I, I'm not 100% sure how this all works, but if you read the documentation for resource arc, it says uh, this resource is, is guaranteed to uh, you know, be recollected when the Beam VM thinks that there is no more uh, references to it, and it can safely pass between threads. The one consideration that you have to make as the author of the library is, uh, you, you, since this thing can be passed between threads, and since uh, the beam is, you know, massively concurrent, uh, it means that potentially two different processes, if they both have a reference to the same data structure, could be trying to operate on it concurrently. Um, so if you look inside the, the Rust code, you'll see every operation um, will attempt to get a, an exclusive lock on the mutex, and if it can't acquire that lock, uh, it'll actually raise uh, a, an, an error back up to the end user. You'll get an error uh, lock fail uh, tuple, which says, hey, you're trying to use this, sort, this sorted set in a highly contentious way, um, and I can't get the lock right now. Uh, in practice, we've only ever seen that in a stress test where we were trying to you know, throw as much contention at it as we could. Um, if you're concerned about it, uh, you know, you can catch that, that error and you can you know, retry your operation or crash your process, whatever recovery mechanism uh, you know, makes sense for your application. Or you can say, hey, you know, I'm gonna make sure that this reference only lives in a gen server state and you know, I'll let the gen server mediate access to it because I don't want concurrent uh, access to it. In practice though, um, you know, the, the reference can be passed around similar to like a, uh, a public, uh, you know, read concurrency or write concurrency ETS uh, TID that you could like pass around, or if you have a name table in ETS that multiple people can read from, uh, ETS internally will do some locking to make sure like, hey, uh, you know, somebody's trying to read from this, somebody's trying to write from it from two different processes, let me do some locks. So there's a little bit of a performance penalty there, but as far as we can tell from uh, our, all of our testing and from operating this in production, the correctness of the data structure is maintained, um, even though you might have to deal, if you're using it in a, a very contentious way, um, uh, with this lock fail error that is, you know, rare in practice to see. But you could you could see it if, if your use case, you know, triggers that edge. So what does using Rustler um, mean for, like, production deployments? Like, do you need to worry that the, like, even more so that the architecture that you're building, uh, the generator release matches production or... Like, how does that work out? Yeah, so the tooling for Rustler is very nice um, from a development standpoint. Uh, you know, of course, it's built on kind of mix. It's, uh, Rustler is not only a Rust project. I would say it's also an Elixir project. It is a well-behaved um, citizen along with Mix. So you can just add a Rustler compiler into your Mix.exs, add the, the Rustler library there, and like it, you know, it all works together, gets tied together. Um, when you are building, you do need to take a little bit of care, like your build system will need to have a Rust tool chain on it. So that was kind of the biggest change for us. Um, we use a, a, a 
build system where we control the machines. We do build on the same architecture that we plan to deploy for. Uh, I believe that that is required, um, although somebody might have some clever thing that they can do with Docker and then you know build it wherever they want. Um, but yeah, what the and the mix compile step will take care of this. Uh, we use Distillery to release our code, and that seem they seem to play just fine with each other. Uh, packages up the SO into the uh, you know the final release, uh, and that all seemed to just work out of the tin. We actually didn't spend much time with that, other than adding Rust to the you know the build uh, machines image, and then everything worked. Do you have to worry about uh, like any packages? I don't know. So is, is Rust similar to Go where the binary that's built like that is can run anywhere that has any kind of like any Linux can pretty much run a, a Go binary. Like you don't have to make sure that you have other weird uh, packages installed. Um, does Is that the same for, for this? Like do you need a Rust libraries or whatever on the production servers? So yeah, this is, this is definitely kind of uh, a little bit outside of my area of expertise, but my understanding is that, you know, Rust kind of gives you a nice, uh, you know, binary that you can just drop onto a server. Rust doesn't really have a, a runtime of sorts that you would need to make sure like, oh, I've, I've got to make sure I have the right Rust on my production machine to run my SO. Uh, so my understanding is that there's no, you know, strict requirement there. You can kind of build it on, and as long as it's the same architecture, um, you should be fine. Um, but since I'm not an expert there, your mileage may vary. So, <laughs> so Matt, we kind of touched on this, uh, before, but my question is, is like, I personally don't have any projects that operate at that scale that we're talking about that discord is currently operating at. So what advice would you give to me about when I might, what's like a heuristic or a, uh, a sign of when I might want to look at NIFs or other special optimizations. Like what I'm, one of the things I'm kind of curious about is, uh, as, as your system started scaling, what were the symptoms that you noticed that said, maybe it's time we should do something different? Yeah, so for the, the, the service that specifically we deployed this NIF for, um, that service acts as kind of an event uh, fan out system. And the symptom that we saw that we then did some research around was like the the message queue would back up um it wouldn't get hopelessly backed up but we would see during peak traffic times um we we kind of have a, a little mailbox summer that runs on the box and it would say hey our you know the mailboxes are supposed to be at zero they're supposed to be real time all the time um but we're starting to see you know this mailbox creep up and then it would you know kind of wax and wane it would kind of come up and then as tr traffic died down, it would come back down. And so we did some profiling. Um, uh, you know, there are so many tools within uh, that, that Beam gives you, but we were able to set a trace where we just captured all of the production uh, messages that were going into one of these processes for a five minute span and capture the state as well. So we had this kind of reproducible test bed where we could spin up locally uh, a state and, and push those messages through and we could time, we could say, well, we know this is a five minute window of messages. So if we can push this through and it process in five minutes, we would be real time. If it takes more than five minutes, then we would fall behind. And if it takes less, then we have headroom. Uh, and what we found was, yeah, it was taking you know, about five minutes, sometimes more than five minutes. So we go, okay, well, that's not great. That means that we can no longer be real time. So that was our hint that like, 
we need to do processing faster. Um, but then it took, you know, continued investigation uh, with profilers and with obser and, uh, observers to see, like, where are we spending the time? Is it, you know, uh, doing silly things that we can just kind of optimize away with standard optimizations and, and you know, uh, just do less work? Um, but what it came down to us and what pointed us towards NIF was it was just re or mutating a data structure, which causes the VM to copy the data structure because it's immutable. Uh, and at that point, we were like, okay, we're up against kind of an, the, the edge of the language. The design of the language is what's making this go slowly. There's immutable data structures. There's not much we can do about that. Luckily for us, our, our you know, Erlang forefathers saw that this might be happening when there is a way out of this. Uh, you can make your own non-functionally uh, you know, pure uh, data structures over here in NIF. Uh, so that, that's what kind of pointed us along the way. Um, but again and again, uh, it, whether you've got a very small application or whether you have a big application, uh, the steps are kind of the same. You need to benchmark things. You need to profile things. You need to understand where your software is spending its time so that you can decide what's the best way to make it spend less time doing something. Yeah, I feel like that's one of the, one of the features that the Beam is like engineered for, which is uh, orchestration with other programs. That's a feature that it works very, very well for. And uh, I have some buddies that I get upset at the ways they go about orchestrating things uh, that are non-Beam-like. Anyway, so yeah, really happy to see you do the rest stuff. Yeah, I actually wanted to come out on that same thing that um, I, I completely agree, Matt, with your point about when you have it, like, first of all, you should have some monitoring in place so that you notice when your system is getting close to edges or just past a boundary that you wanted to try to, that was important for your users, um, right? So this is not going to be some, it, often cases, it's not going to just be like a plug-in thing. It's going to be something that you care about and measure. Um, and then when it's time to deal with the problem, the best thing you can do is try to capture a scenario that is as close to what's really happening in production as possible. I, I know I am certainly someone who has suffered the, the, the terrible fate of, oh, something is slow in production. Let's take a guess at what it is. It's probably this. Let's try to optimize that and release to production. Oh, everything's still slow. Repeat this process 19 times. Um, that's, that's not great for anybody. Um, and, and, and so I think that it's really amazing for us that the Beam has these sorts of observability uh, features really built into it. And um, as much as I get super excited about uh, Rust and Go and, and these other languages where you, really, you get down and dirty into the guts and I feel like I'm a Linux kernel hacker or something, you know, that's, that's an amazing feeling and they are amazing tools. But um, when it comes to my overall system, the ability to peek into it and say, oh, well, I want to capture like the messages flowing into this part of my system for a five minute period, you would have to build a, a custom version of your app to be able to do that in almost any other language. And, um, and I've built those custom versions of my apps in other languages and it's not fun and it's not like exciting work to do because all you really wanted to know was what was happening so that I can reproduce it and then I can work on it and, and profile and, uh, and test and, and try other things. Um, so I, I really like that you highlighted that, that process of, of walking through and knowing what was happening in production measuring things, uh, and then measuring your progress against that as you try additional solutions. 
Um, is there any other, um, any other times that you've noticed where having, having a runtime VM for your production system has, has made a big difference to your ability to fix things or to um, diagnose problems in production? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we <clears throat> can use, uh, so we deploy along with our production services. Um, we use Recon, which is just a, a fantastic uh, production ready library. Um, so whenever we get, you know, uh, a, a long message queue or, hey, the memory usage on a box is looking a little bit weird, being able to go in and do a recon proc count, you know, memory and get the top five memory users or recon proc count message queue len and see the five processes that have, you know, the, the largest or, you know, the, the N processes that have the largest message queue and then being able to dig in deeper and deeper and go, okay, well, what's the process info? What's the, what's the current stack trace? Show me what you're doing right now. Are you stuck in a loop? Are you making progress? Have you just kind of fallen behind? Um, so, I mean, uh, a lot of the, the optimizations that we make, a lot of the troubleshooting that we do is guided by the observability into the VM. Uh, and yeah, I, having now worked <clears throat> on a production Elixir service for you know, uh, almost two years, uh, I, I look back at, at some of the things kind of similarly that I had to do in the past to, to get that kind of insight into what my system was doing and go, boy, the, the beam is just amazingly helpful in all of the information. It is just going to give up to you and say, here's what I'm doing. Here's how many reductions I've done. Here's how much memory. Here's the last time I did a GC sweep on this process. Here's just everything you need to know. Uh, so all of the tools are there for you. And, and I think that, uh, you know, learning those tools and properly applying those tools to get insight into your system uh, pays off huge dividends. I would, I would suggest that anyone who's running, you know, a Phoenix app in, in production or, or an OTP application in production, um, you know, get comfortable with those tools, learn about recon, learn about how to use observer, learn about how to use the low level tracing uh, capabilities in the VM and, you know, the debugging capabilities in the VM and, and you know, just, peeking into processes, looking at their, their stack traces or their message queue lengths or uh, their, you know, the process dictionary, if there's anything interesting in there. And just learning all of those little edges that give you the insight into how your application is running and where problems might be. Yeah, I wanted to just say also Recon is, in fact, amazing. It saved me from this extremely weird situation recently that I couldn't figure out how to diagnose otherwise. Basically, I had an edge case that would start eating up a processor with an infinite loop. And I couldn't find that process with anything but recon. And I, yeah, it was just literally who's used the most reductions and the, the top five reduction users over a time window. Yeah, I, I had a, an issue once a while ago where with a, I was using an old StatsD reporting library. Um, it has since been in the readme, it says, oh, just go use a different library. This one's deprecated. But I started to get a memory leak, had to go look for it in production. And it was literally open observer, sort the processes by memory allocation and it was number one and it was far away different from everything else and it was very easy to diagnose where that memory was being held and and, um, and very easy to deal with it um, and in a short term I could just kill it from right from observer to to make sure that I, that didn't crash my whole VM and things like that so really amazing tools there um, Matt one other question I was uh, hoping we could get a chance to talk about just briefly is I've always uh, appreciated about discord over the years that um, as you all have been running into these different kinds of problems, 
you both seem to, somehow you, you all seem to find time to blog about these learnings. And you also seem to find the time to release a lot of open source. So I was, I was going through, uh, there's a GitHub organization called Discord app. Um, and I counted nine different open source Elixir libraries um, that were for all sorts of different things. And uh, is that something that you guys talk about as a team? Is there, um, do you allocate specific time for those kinds of activities? Because I've, I've worked in a lot of places where releasing an open source version of something is more work than just writing it directly into your own app. Um, writing any sort of documentation is extra time. Um, how do you guys make time for that? Because I really love the fact that you're providing these resources for the community. Yeah, so uh, our open source efforts are very important to us. I think we recognize that a lot of the success that we have is by being able to build on uh, incredibly mature uh, technology and open source technology. You know, what would we do if uh, Jose Valim had not, you know, open sourced Elixir for us to use in our in our project, right? So um, I think we understand that, you know, if we want to be good citizens of the community, we can't just take, take, take. There has to be reciprocity. And as we build a, an amazing tech stack on top of Elixir and we solve problems, we go, well, we, you know, it's, it's unlikely that we're the only people that run into this difficult situation with Elixir where, you know, maybe there's not an obvious solution in the standard library or we think we found a better way to do something. Uh, and I would argue that our open source ethos kind of flows from the top. I think our, our CTO is very supportive of the idea that, you know, we need to make sure that we give back to the community, make sure that, you know, for all the, the great value that we've been able to extract uh, from using Elixir uh, and all the great, you know, open source uh, tools, things like Recon that we just talked about, you know, an open source tool uh, itself, like that is something that we want to be able to provide back to the community um, because it's just been such a big part of, of, of our tech stack. Uh, now, as to like resourcing it, that's always tricky, but we do, we, we, we do resource it, right? Like when I open source sorted set, there was a week of time where I was um, taking our internal stuff, uh, getting it, you know, ready to ship out to the public, cleaning things up, adding tests, adding documentation, making things more clear for, um, you know, users who might be at a different um, skill level or a different part of their journey, you know, as a software engineer or, or hobbyists. Um, or whoever might want to use the library. Uh, so we do put time towards it. Um, we do spend time making sure that like we're staying on top of our you know, issue trackers and, and pull requests. Uh, and we think that this is a, an important uh, way to you know, build the community uh, from our side and not just take from the community. I imagine you also have some benefit just because uh, it raises awareness in the community. People are seeing like the, in terms of recruiting, that it might be easier to draw talent? Is that, have you seen that as the case too? Yeah, so I mean, definitely there, there is a part of it that is like we want to be known as a place that's solving interesting problems with Elixir so that people want to come and work with us, come and work for us. Uh, so that is something that we kind of put out into the world so that people know like, hey, it's a, it's a chat application and you might go, well, I don't know what this chat application is built in. I don't know what kind of problems they're solving. I don't know what kind of scale they're working at. But this allows us to kind of have a direct line with people who would be valuable, uh, you know, members of, of Discord. Um, you know, quick plug, Discord is always hiring. So, uh, yeah, discordapps.com slash jobs. Uh, but yeah, we want to we wanna let, know, 
we want to let people know kind of two things. One, we are solving hard problems. And two, Elixir is a viable candidate for building big things. Because even if you're not going to come and work for us right now, uh, if you are building the kinds of skills that, you know, you might want to come and work for us later. Uh, and building that community uh, means getting people comfortable with the idea that Elixir is production ready. Elixir can operate at scale. When you hit the edge of, a, of what you think you can do with Elixir, Bean jumps out and says, you haven't hit the edge yet. There's NIFs, there's port drivers, there's ETS. There's a million things you can do to continue pushing the envelope. Uh, and so as we've seen that happen again and again, we want to share those stories uh, so that somebody who's maybe trying to convince their manager to give this Elixir thing a try or someone who's trying to decide if they want to start their new project in Elixir can have a clear case study and go, yeah, this thing can scale. Um, of course, you could also point to, you know, WhatsApp and, and there, there's so many success stories on the beam. So, yeah, uh, but we want to be one of those. Yeah, and you are. <laughs> and I do appreciate, uh, as, as uh, Michael had talked about, like just the fact that there is so much that you're giving back to the community. And so I really appreciate that just as a, a member of the community, even if I'm not directly using one of these libraries, it helps to enrich the whole community. Uh, and, and so I benefit indirectly as well. So. I appreciate that and, and all the work that you guys are doing. Thank you. And I guess just to <clears throat> kind of continue on with the, the idea of the beam talking back to you. I just, I just love the, the idea of like the beam just saying like, is that all you got? Like we can keep going. <laughs> yeah. If anyone does apply a discord, tell them that Mark sent you. So Matt, a little bit about you and your history. I assume that you have some other programming experience before coming to Discord and Elixir. You probably, I don't know, did you have experience with other uh, functional programming languages or kind of where was your uh, developer journey like? Yeah, so before Discord, um, I worked for six years uh, for another startup, um, Twilio, uh, Cloud Communications API. Um, their tech stack, though, uh, is not really, um, you know, close to Discord tech stack. I, it was uh, very, uh, we, there was PHP and Python and Java. Um, before then, I worked as a consultant, um, building stuff in whatever language people wanted, uh, C Sharp, Java. But a lot of the stuff that I did was, uh, you know, probably closer to object-oriented programming. I would say uh, that my, uh, my, Journey took me to Discord, and Discord was where I started doing functional programming and doing, um, you know, uh, using Beam for the first time. Um, I had, you know, uh, learned about functional programming in the past. I tried to apply some of you know, the, the best parts of it um, in non-functional languages, um, which is always a little bit tricky because you're, you're kind of building the, the, the car that you're trying to drive. <laughs> so. Um, so I was aware of these concepts, but I, I don't think I got to see them in practice. I don't think I got to you know, use them to their fullest and really appreciate um, the simplicity that functional programming brings to things, to the, the clarity of going, yes, you know, the, there's inputs and there's outputs and they depend on each other and it's, you know, it's easier to test, it's easier to reason about. Uh, this data structure is immutable. I don't need to worry about, you know, a thread coming in and changing it. And I think more than anything, uh, coming to Elixir, the, there were problems that I tried to solve in Python and, you know, things like 
uh, atomically increment a counter and make sure like nothing bad has happened in the meanwhile or no other threat has like come in and changed state. And it's tricky. You've, you've got to have locks. You've got to really think through your concurrency primitives. Uh, and when I was like, oh, you know, this is kind of like using, you know, G event monkey patch where I'm writing like code that looks very sequential, but it's massively concurrent. Um, so yeah, so that was my, my journey. I, I had done a lot of distributed systems design, uh, distributed systems architecture, uh, built a lot of uh, uh, really cool things. But uh, I would say Elixir has been an eye-opening journey, um, not just for what we're building at Discord, but it has really made me rethink the way that uh, I approach programming and, and how I look at problems and solve problems and where I would have built you know, a complex uh, class hierarchy I now go, yeah, why was, I, why was I doing this? This is just data and like functions acting upon data. So uh, it's, been, it's been a very uh, big change uh, in some ways. And in some ways it's been, you know, me getting to apply concepts that I've learned a long time ago and, and enjoy, you know, learning and using. So Awesome. Well, thank you for that uh, background. Um, is, if there's anything else that we'd like to talk about, any topics you'd like to mention? All right, I'll take that as a no, and let's uh, go to picks. All right, uh, Michael, do you want to go first? Sure, I'll go first. Um, so two picks this week. So the Raspberry Pi 4 came out. Uh, I'm sure any, any listeners that have played around with Raspberry Pis might have heard about this. Um, I helped organize a little uh, get-together um, that we get together online once a month to talk about nerves things. And so Raspberry Pi news is always very exciting for us. Um, and the Raspberry Pi 4 it has some pretty serious upgrades. And the Raspberry Pi Foundation has this cool mantra where internally they say that they're gonna always stick to a $35 price point. And so upgrades are always about how much more can we provide while sticking to this price point. Um, and that's a really, it's a really interesting constraint to put on an engineering problem. They've come out with some really cool stuff uh, and it looks like a lot of fun to play with. Uh, and then my second pick is uh, a YouTube channel called Flight Test. And so, um, a long time ago, I got into remote control airplanes, kind of got out of it around the time that I started having kids because um, doing a lot of like, you know, cutting foam with razor blades and using super tough super glues uh, was not great to do with little children around. And uh, but recently, my, my kids are a little bit older and I have a little bit of a garage space where I can do some more building. And uh, it's been super fun to go out and build an airplane and then fly it and take my kids with me. And uh, I'm just about to get set up so that I can have one of them help me to fly the airplane in a way that won't assuredly crash my airplanes immediately. Uh, and and so this web, this YouTube channel, they're just a bunch of people. They're constantly kind of building crazy things, but they also open source all their plans for their planes. Um, they provide a lot of like getting started guides uh, and a lot of really cool content if you want to get into remote control stuff, um, which for me has just been a really cool thing to do with my kids uh, and, and a good chance to step away from the computer a little bit. Awesome. Josh, do you have something? I do. I have uh, one pick, which is Sorbit was released or open sourced. So Sorbit is uh, a type checker for Ruby, basically. Um, and the files that they worked with, I think they actually delayed the release because they were working with Ruby with Matt's on um, Ruby 3 is going to have type checking. And so now they have kind of a shared format for their type files. So my understand, that's my understanding, at least, from watching a, a single Matt's talk. But anyway, um, it's exciting. I'm curious if there's anything we can learn from it. Um, 
but I haven't looked into it in too much depth since it just came out. And that's my only pick. Awesome. Eric, do you have something to share? Yeah, so I'm going to, uh, so I'm also on uh, another podcast called Smart Software with Smart Logic. Um, my company is, is producing it. Um, and so I think if I guess the timing on when this comes out, I think this Thursday when the episode airs, we're starting season two again. Um, so we're going to start doing uh, weekly releases again, talking about Elixir internals. And we've interviewed a bunch of uh, developers about like specific libraries and how they work and, and like, yeah, it's a pretty cool season. So uh, I guess the, some to kind of tease it a bit. Um, I think our, our first episode will be Brooklyn Zelenka, uh, where we're talking about witchcraft and all the Haskellisms that have made it into <laughs> Elixir. So yeah, get ready, get ready for that. Uh, hopefully two days after this episode comes out, I think, or it's already out, one of the two. Awesome. Yeah, that is something that people should certainly check out. Um, yeah, so I was going to follow one of Michael's um, about the Raspberry Pi 4. I he, I, he, he really pretty much nailed everything I was going to say, but uh, I thought it was interesting that it come, came out with a one gigabyte, two gigabyte, and four gigabyte RAM model. So like the four gigabyte is $55, but you're talking about like dual 4K monitor out. And it's like, this could actually be a decent desktop computer, you know, like just like, just, you know, for web browsing and stuff like that. I thought, man, that's something I might just want to play with, you know, great thing to have a, like a family computer kind of situation where it's just cheap and available and I can hack on it too. Uh, the other one I was going to mention is uh, the Hava Supai Reservation. So Hava Supai, I did this trip uh, about two weeks ago and it is a hiking trip. So the Hava Supai is a Indian tribe, American Indian tribe, and they live in a canyon inside of the Grand Canyon. It's an incredible area that you just kind of have to see pictures of to even believe that it's real. And then you're going to look at those and think, oh, I think that's Photoshopped, but it's not. And these are incredible waterfalls where they have this high lime content, which ends up creating these really unique formations and kind of white coats, like calcium coats, the bases of the rivers and the, and it's just the water's perfectly clear and blue. And it's just amazing. It is a not, not for the faint of heart, it is a 10 mile hike in and you camp for three days and you bring all your food and you bring all your trash out and you hike 10 miles out. And, and the village that the, the people live in is like a third world kind of feel. Uh, there are no roads, there are no cars. And so it's just totally a real, you know, you are unplugged, you are offline, uh, but it's an awesome, awesome experience. So if that's something that you're able to check out and you enjoy that sort of thing, I encourage you to do that. All right, Matt, do you have something you can talk about? Yeah, I would love to um, uh, plug uh, the <clears throat> official uh, Elixir community server on Discord. Um, there, it's, uh, it's not, uh, I don't think it's as large as the, the Slack group, but it is very active. Um, we have people uh, like myself who are who have been writing Elixir uh, at, at you know production scale, at Discord scale. Um, but we also have people who are brand new who are just learning, asking questions. Um, it's a very positive community. It's very supportive. So uh, if you're new to Elixir or if you're running into issues with something, um, you know, come and join. Uh, it's, it's 
Discord is free, so you know, download the client, hop on in, or you can use our web app uh, and you know chat away with us. So we'd love to have more people uh, in there. And the other pick I have is actually an old uh, video, um, but it was probably the video. Uh, it's a talk by Destroy All Software uh, called Boundaries. Um, and I think this was the thing that kind of opened my eyes to how you could design uh, functional systems, uh, especially if you are maybe you, you like Elixir, but you don't get to work in it. You, you have to work in a more imperative language. Um, this was a way to really think about these uh, doing functional design and, and functional architecture in an imperative uh, language. Um, but also a lot of the, the ideas there kind of transfer nicely um, to uh, Beam languages. So uh, it's a great talk. I think it's now five, six years old, but it's still a good talk. Uh, so I'd like to plug that. Um, and uh, if you are looking for a TV show to watch and you have not watched Halt and Catch Fire, you should watch Halt and Catch Fire. It is maybe uh, one of the most interesting uh, shows about you know, early computers. Uh, so I'll, I'll plug that as well. Seconded. It's amazing. Awesome. And I did want to just one quick public service announcement uh, is that if you hadn't already seen it, because this is delayed from when you'll hear it. Uh, Elixir 1.9 was officially released. And so that you can go and check out the release notes and see what's going on there. It's uh, got some great stuff. I'm sure we'll be talking more about that in the future, but just be aware that that's there. Great. Well, Matt, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a really pleasure talking with you and I appreciate the insights and experience that you've been sharing with us. And if people would like to follow you online or connect with you, how would you direct them to do that? Uh, so I'm most active probably on GitHub uh, and uh, I'll give you guys a link to my GitHub. I'm iHumanable there um, and that is where I'm most active. Uh, so, uh, and of course, Discord. So I'm iHumanable0001 uh, uh, on there. So um, if you come to the Elixir server, uh, you'll, you'll see me there answering questions and, and chatting to people. So come and chat with us there on the Elixir server. Great. Well, that's it for today. We hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.